These moments to share mean so much when we know that we're fellow, we're journeying together in a kingdom adventure. And if today, today we're going to talk about the proactive urgency of the gospel. It's reflected in the proactive urgency of servants of the good news. Because in the very heart and nature of the good news of Jesus Christ's triumphant resurrection and conquest over hell, sin, death, and the grave, there is a, there's a built-in urgency. You can sense that urgency almost as if through the very page of Scripture in the book of Acts, when Jesus talks to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, turn to that for just a moment and notice it very briefly, that Acts chapter 1 where Jesus is giving these, this um, astounding, briefly summarized in Acts 1-3, but an astounding, extensive look at the kingdom of God that now is present tense, dynamically active in the message of the gospel, though the disciples will not be able to see the Lord with their physical eyes after verse 11 in Acts 1 where he ascends bodily to the right hand of God the Father. This entire section of Acts 1 is a great way to think about the urgency we see in Colossians chapter 4. As we look at our Colossians snapshots part 8, we're looking at some windows into the soul and even the lifestyle choices of the Apostle Paul that that reflect a powerful, proactive urgency. And by proactive, I mean that in most cases of Paul's story, the writer, the human writer of the epistle to the Colossians that we've been exploring, in most aspects of his life, the Apostle Paul had an intriguing way of dealing with the question of what should I do next? (laughs) And it is and, and it, the intriguing aspect we see in Act 1 as well, because Jesus was talking to the disciples about what would happen after he was gone and his, even his risen glory, even his glorified body, would be away from them. Acts 1-3, he says to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now hold your place there and turn to Colossians chapter 4. And um, we're going to look together at verses 2 through 6 mainly, Colossians 4, that shows us the proactive urgency in the life of the Apostle Paul that he intentionally wanted to embed in the experience of believers in these Newly thriving churches. And I love to take this to heart right here to Liberty Church and say, wherever you are today, however you've come here, however you've been prepared for these days, would you join me in accepting from the lips and example of the Apostle Paul that we are on the move, that God has a plan in the good news that he's placed in our lives to make us proactive This intriguing aspect of Paul's life is that he did not sit around passively waiting for supernatural instructions. There was something in the very nature, the dynamics of the gospel. One missions speaker I heard years ago 
jokingly said that the name of God is two-thirds go. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that understanding of the gospel, the good news in its very nature, is a going gospel. It is moving. It is not. Uh, the message you and I love and cherish is not a static thing, just sitting on a shelf gathering dust. It is a dynamic moving thing. So back in Acts 1, I want to ask you to see this as we look at uh, Acts at Colossians 4.2 in a moment. In Acts 1, he speaks of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, disciples are inclined here to start wondering about future questions that it's not yet time for them to learn about. And their focus is really on speculating what does it mean to belong to God in our culture. In verse 6 of Acts 1, they had come together. When they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So they were thinking, present tense, about something visible like, like an upheaval, a social upheaval, an, op an upheaval of the governmental systems, what so many people talk about today when they say systemic changes that everybody's always banging the drums for, these guys had a similar instinct. Is everything going to just change in the governmental structure, in the cultural structure, in the social structure? Well, clearly, reading between the lines, what Jesus said was those things are of far less importance than what I'm about to tell you. Look at verse 8 of Acts 1. You will receive power. The word is dunamis. The word dunamis, if we think of it in scientific terms, we think of potential energy and kinetic energy. Kinetic energy is energy that is being released. It is in action. And Jesus was giving the believers dunamis, kinetic power, to bring the good news. He says you'll receive power could you say aloud with me today, I receive power. Say it with me. I receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Being precedes doing. So it wasn't a witnessing seminar. It was an identity embedded in them. You are going to be living witnesses. You're going to be walking as witnesses. Now go to Colossians 4, verse 2, and I'd like you to think about this illustration that Paul uses of a dash of salt in verse 6 and 7. Let's read verse 2 through 6 of um, Colossians 4. I'm reading to you from the New American Standard translation here. Devote yourselves to prayer, Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. King James Bible uses this wonderful phrase there, a door of utterance. It's as if Paul is saying, embedded in me is an undiminished, Powerful move 
to bring good news to others, even though he's imprisoned, as he states in this paragraph. And my prayer is that God will open more doors of utterance. So there is a prophetic urgency. There is a moving forward. And Paul's primary prayer request as an apostle is that he might be, he might be engaged in places where God opens doors. So he prays, he asks that they pray that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been imprisoned. And here's a prayer too that he applies to the believer in verse 6. He asks it for himself first and then he applies it to all of us. He says, my prayer is that I may speak it clearly as I should. Now, Paul is giving the believers here a kind of a personal insight into his own need. And as he does this, he is establishing action steps that will invite every child of God to join him in this proactive urgency to be people of good news. And not just to know good news, not just to believe good news, but to know by the grace of God, there's no mysterious mantle that needs to fall upon you or some angelic dream or vision to tell you to get up and talk about Christ. No, it's, it's in you. Acts 1.8 says you're a living witness. Now, I know some of us, we back off from that and we think, oh, but I, I don't know how, I don't know what I would say. That's exactly the point of this passage. It starts with prayer, verse 2, go back to that, and let's just kind of zero in on this. In verse 2 of Colossians 4, his first phrase here after completing the section of masters and slaves, the three different areas of responsibilities area we talked about last week, he says, devote yourselves to prayer because with an alert attitude of thanksgiving to God, your prayers will open your eyes to things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And when you pray for me, Paul is saying, pray, verse 3, that, that God will open another door for me. And here's a guy, think of it. Here's a guy, we look back in the rearview mirror of history, and so we see things that happened, and we all kind of have a feeling of inevitability about it. It's like, well, of course that was going to happen. You know, the Allies were going to world, win World War II. We look back and think, oh, of course, of course D-Day was going to be successful, right? But, of course, there was no certainty about it. The same thing is true for a situation like in Paul's life. We look back on the imprisonments of Paul, and we know this one, where the book of Colossians was written, was most likely the second of third. There could have been another one in between. But his final imprisonment in 2 Timothy 4 is when he was executed for his faith. And yet, here Paul is, behind, is in, under a limited form of house arrest, a, a certain kind of imprisonment, and he... He says he has no freedom to come and go on his own volition. But he says, pray that God will open the door of utterance for me. And then verse 4, that I may speak it clearly as I should. You see, for Paul, clearly presenting the good news of Jesus to others begins with a yearning for learning. He was continuously yearning to learn more of the Savior. 
and it's reflected in what he wrote. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. An illustration of a calling. Go ahead and receive it. It's like what we verbalized a moment ago when I said, asked you to say, I receive power. God's word gives us energy and equipment. And then as we lean into that, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, learn of me, learn of me. So there is a built-in invitation from Jesus for every child of God to begin learning more about what it means to carry the life-giving good news of Jesus Christ. And the striking thing about Paul's example is he did not wait around passively, mystically, superstitiously waiting for something to slap him in the face. He was moving even behind bars. Paul was in motion. (laughs) He was moving. Because God's good news is moving inside of him. And then let's complete this section of the text, Colossians 4, verse 5, where he now moves to the believers like you and me, and he applies the same truth. It's almost as if the apostle is being a personal mentor here to a, an assembly of worshipers that he's never met, as we know. And he is sending them this message to say, if I could, if I could, by means of this scroll, by by means of this parchment, by means of this letter that's going to be carried to you directly, if I could, I would come right alongside you, friends, in the church of Colossae and your friends at Laodicea and Hierapolis, these little communities. And I would come alongside you, and it would say the same today, I would come alongside you and say, I'm learning of the Savior Walk with me as we learn together, but never stop moving forward. Yeah, the Lord can redirect you. He can stop you. The Lord can put a roadblock if you're moving the wrong direction. He's faithful to do that. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep know my voice and they follow me. There's no problem for Jesus to shepherd us wisely. The biggest problem is when we get stuck in passivity. We get stuck in what we feel is no man's land. We get stuck in a place where we just think, well, I'm waiting for more. I'm waiting for something else from heaven. Now, the Holy Spirit powerfully is emphasizing here these four action steps that can be a part of all of our lives. And as you look at it in Colossians chapter 4, we can see that we can be a part of the very same proactive urgency that Paul is reflecting here. Because we can devote ourselves to prayer, We can stay alert in a prayerful attitude with thanksgiving. We can conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. And we can say, verse number four with me, could you allow it? Make the most of every opportunity. In your text, in your own Bible, look at how that's worded there in verse five and six. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. How could we possibly be carriers of the good news if we're not learning, if we're not yearning to learn? 
Paul reflects this same yearning to learn in another passage. We won't take the time to turn there, but it's, it's notable how he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, when I go to areas of, uh, where a cultural difference is striking between me and others, I seek to adapt myself as much as I can, not in any way compromising uh, truth, but I seek to adapt myself. He said to the Jew, 1 Corinthians 9, he said to the Jew, I become as a Jew because he was a Jew by his natural birth, and yet he was now the apostle to the Gentiles. His entire focus was the non-Jewish world. But he said, when I'm back among my Jewish friends, my Jewish people, Jewish background, I, I adapt to many of their Jewish customs. I, I have no problem with that. But the singular message that he's bringing of the Messiah who fulfilled all of those great prophecies is always what he's about. And he said, to those who are of maybe unrefined, not the higher class, no doubt the Apostle Paul would choose to dress in a way that was appropriate to the group that he was coming to minister to. He would have no problem with that. Maybe if they're more formal than he wants to be, he would dress up and be formal. If they're, le if they're less, he would, he would dress down and be less formal. In other words, all of those things were of no significance to Paul compared to the glory and the joy and the power of bringing the good news of God to the hearts of people. He said, I'll become all things to all men that I may win some. <laughs> so, if he had to learn it, well, certainly, certainly we've got a lot to learn. Don't you think that actually if we're going to devote ourselves to prayer, if we're actually going to be engaged in, in a, an, an open relationship with outsiders, you notice in that... Um, word in verse 5, if you have your Bible open and you have a pen or a pencil, I'd, I'd really encourage you to circle that word outsiders in verse 5, because it's one of the most striking aspects of what we learn about the Apostle Paul in this letter, is that in our prior weeks we dealt with some of the really big issues of what they believed about Jesus, who he is, the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And then in chapter 3, we applied that to lifestyle issues when we looked at laser beam living, that the fact that Christ is our life now, present tense, that we're alive in Christ and Christ is alive in us. And that means that every day of my life, Christ is my life. I can approach the problems of life with laser beam confidence that God's grace is there. But when we get to chapter 4 then, we see the messaging aspect of Paul's emphasis. That is, that because all these great truths are there, because Colossians 1.13 says he's delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Because Colossians 2.6 says that we can grow being rooted and grounded and established in the faith and abounding therein with thanksgiving. Because all the fullness of the Godhead, Colossians 2.9, dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Because of these great truths, you can now go. You can go into the world. You can go into your workplace. You can go into your neighborhood. You can go into your relationships. You can go missions. You can go into social situations, even if you don't feel completely comfortable, and know that grace of God is there. And just like the Apostle Paul, may I simply put it this way, that we all have a lot to learn. We all have so much to learn. 
Proverbs chapter 24, verse 32, contains a key that I see exemplified in the proactive urgency of Paul, and that is, I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. You trace the life of the Apostle Paul from the moment that the risen Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road and Paul just was overwhelmed by the magnificent glory, the Shekinah glory of the risen Son of God. And on his face, even in the dust of the Damascus Road, Paul's first statements reflect a budding curiosity that would then blossom into a full a full development in his life when he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? A whole section of the book of Galatians in chapter 2 shows a 14-year span. A 14-year span where Saul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, is basically in an extended period of learning in the Arabian desert with a couple of forays into Jerusalem to meet the key apostles. But basically, most of that Arabian period, 14 years, was preparation for what we're reading now in our text. How much more for us? There are times in your life when, yeah, you may feel like I'm just in a space that I don't understand. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to invest. Remember, that doesn't change the fact that you are a living witness. You are in preparation. God is doing something in your life. And the beauty of it is you can do what Proverbs 24, 32 says. Apply your heart to learning. What would you have me to know? What would you have me to do? Open your innermost being to a learning process and if you'll keep your Bible open in Colossians 4 and go back a few verses to the 16th verse of the third chapter, do this with our Bibles open, if you could please, because here this relates directly to what he said two paragraphs back. Look at it in your own Bible in Colossians 3.16. It's so beneficial, by the way, to see these things in our own Bibles and to step back from it and, and realize that this this very fact of this proactive urgency that Paul reflects for us is why we needed the truth of Colossians 3.16. Would you read it from your own Bible there? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now notice the emphasis of verse 16 of Colossians 3. It's exactly what Paul exemplifies in chapter 4. And that is, this is not... A one-time experience of learning. It's not like a five-day seminar or a three-week seminar. Those things have their place and they're valuable. But the point is that the character of a church, the character of a true Christ-honoring congregation is that the hearts of the redeemed meet God in worship, give Him their hearts in praise, and then plunge into the learning process that Colossians 3.16 talks about. What does it say in Colossians 3.16? Let this word of Christ, the, the word Christ himself brings to us, is the emphasis of the text. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, 
with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in your heart to God. This indicates that the synergy between what we sing and what we study is also a vital part of the nourishment of a believer's life. Yeah, even on the run with your own Spotify or your own iPod or your own favorite source of music, pick things, create playlists that give you music that reminds you of the magnitude of his redemptive power, that brings the refreshing to your soul of a reminder of what Christ has done in your life. And oh, and today, we've got resources that are so amazing today. We can, we can curate our own playlists of music and worship. Why not fill more of our driving time and our downtime or our in-between time with listening to the Word of God and listening to great music that magnifies? Because it is part of this really a joyful learning process. Notice the, um, notice the essential verb of verse 2, if you go back to that now, because Colossians 4.2 then would take what we see in chapter 3, verse 16, the teaching, the yearning to learn, this, this growth, this passion to let the word of Christ dwell in us, and then he, he uses a strong imperative verb, a continuous action imperative verb in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, devote yourselves. Uh, four quick translations of that verb are these here on the screen. To continue, continue to pray. Now that's, that's a great reminder, isn't it? Because how many of you know it's in the very nature of prayer that sometimes when we don't see our way, we start getting a little weary or we wonder, is my prayer doing anything? Is there a saint, is there a Christian alive who hasn't wondered that? Come on, just be honest. There's nobody here but us and God today. So just be honest, right? How many of you have wondered, did my prayer do anything? Okay, of course we did. Because that's a normal part of the human side of this equation, isn't it? But that's another reason why we have Colossians 4 too, Because he says, continue. Press into it. Acquire this active pursuit of God in prayer persevere. And all of that helps then to create this, this learning environment that he refers to in verse 2 also as an alertness. There is an alertness that we begin to develop. Now in my view, this alertness, the second thing I want to give you today is this alertness to the actual needs of others is a skill that begins at home. Notice that the the tip of the spear of this paragraph that we're reading is verse 6, which concludes on the phrase, be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Okay, now we're going to look at a dash of salt here in the third part, but here he's saying the goal of the dash of salt is, is that you and I may do something that many of us don't feel qualified to do. But I'm here to tell you, hallelujah, you can do it. Because the Holy Spirit is doing something through the gospel that works in every person's personality. And yes, I include the shy people in this. Yes. 
We love shy people. And we love non-shy people. Can I hear an amen? Say it with me. Thank God for introverts. Now say it with me. Thank God for extroverts. And now could you say this with me? We need each other. And the beauty of the gospel is that the good news of the gospel is not limited in any way by those parameters. Introvert, extrovert, everything in between. Super shy. Don't ask me my name. Don't greet me at the door. <laughs> you know. Or the opposite, you know, the ticker types. Ah! <laughs> God loves the unique diversity of his people. And the good news comes to us and says, Come to Christ and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls, and you will communicate. Paul's focus is on communicating clearly and accurately. Let's pair up verse 2 and verse 6 so we can see. Paul is talking about his own prayer for himself and immediately applies it to all the believers. In verse 2, he says, Pray that a door will be opened, that I may speak it wisely and clearly as I should. As many times as Paul had preached, he kept yearning to learn, How could I communicate better? Any preacher who truly honors Christ has that incredibly strong yearning in his or her soul, no matter where they are. Help me, Lord, to clearly communicate this. In myself, I'm inadequate. I am a vessel. Anyone who faithfully brings God's word knows this. And anyone who's cocky and arrogant enough to think they don't need to be constantly on their face asking God for grace to clearly communicate is, 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 not, is not going to find the joy of this wonderful adventure as they could. And the end of verse 6, he is applying the same truth to the believer. Just as anyone who is called to proclaim the gospel should be saying, Oh Lord, give me grace to bring this clearly. In the same way, verse 6 is saying, with a dash of salt in your life, the salt of the kingdom, you are being called to savor and create an appetite like good salt does, in, like the right amount of salt does in food, to create an appetite for others to learn and hear more about him. And then the end of verse 6 says, so that you will know how you should respond to each Person. Now, I was just struck by this in realizing that the heart of this passage begins in the living room, kitchen, bedrooms, hallways, basements, garages, decks, farms, swimming pools, RVs, boats, <laughs> of all of God's people. Where do we most Learn, need to learn to respond wisely and thoughtfully and in an uplifting way and in a way that honors God. Where do we most need to learn it? It begins in our home. I remember a, a leadership writer, business leadership, oh, 30 years ago, a long time ago, Warren Bennis wrote a book just called Leaders. And one of his truths that they discovered from some research they did was that one of the most disturbing tendencies of many executives is the, is the uh, temptation to treat the client or the customer or the 
um, prospective investor far better than they treat the people closest to them. And Warren Bennis's insight about executive leadership was that one of your great challenges as an executive leader in any organization is to ask yourself the question, how am I treating those people who are closest to me? Because it's been proven. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is known for this aspect of his personality. Clerks around the Supreme Court know. Other justices, even those with vastly different views than Supreme Court, than Justice Thomas, have said very warmly and very um, appreciatively that Justice Thomas is known that he knows every person in that Supreme Court building. He asked about their children. The guy that runs the elevator, the, the clerk of the other justices. Heard about you, heard your, your sister had a baby. Uh, you know, his, his constant interest in where people were and knowing people and, and that his clerks have a feeling of family. Even if they clerked for Justice Thomas 25 years ago, they feel like they're still part of the, the Thomas family. That those characteristics, those capacities that people, some people have uniquely to really understand the people closest to them. Paul exemplifies it at the, at the end of this chapter. And, it's, and we see that there's a real practical and wonderful invitation in this text that every one of us could take home today and put to work. And that is to ask ourselves, how do I respond? Please circle the word respond in verse 7, verse 6. How you should, look at that last phrase, that you will know how you should respond to each person. And I ask you to circle the word respond because isn't that the biggest problem? If we gear ourselves up to do the right thing and remind ourselves what we need to do before we go into a situation, we may do quite well. Our temptation to lose our temper, to be irritable, to be unkind, to be divisive, to be dismissive of someone else, to diminish their sense of personhood is when we're responding out of our emotions or our guts. And Paul is, I believe he's saying, you can begin with those closest to you so that in those conversation bubbles of life, you can do exactly what he had prayed and emphasized in Philippians 1.9 when he said, I pray that your love may abound. More and more, and would you read these, these last six words of that text with me from the word with? Would you read it aloud? With knowledge and depth of insight. This, Philippians 1.9 prayer, goes right alongside this call to be salt, people who sprinkle salt into these vital relationships. Why? Because when we devote ourselves to prayer, meaning not just like, an hour of prayer on your knees in a certain spot, that's valuable. But the text of verse chapter 4, verse 2, is really talking about working bursts of prayer into every part of your life. Stop and pray. Pause and pray. Set aside time to pray. And when you don't have time, stop and pray. Bring the oxygen of prayer into the stuffy atmospheres of social misunderstanding and conflict. Create spaces of prayer in your life. And what will happen 
is exactly what Proverbs 2 verse 10 says happens as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Wisdom will enter your heart. I believe that Paul is actually applying this very, this very truth because the difference in wisdom and knowledge should be noted. We may know many things that are right about how to treat spouse, children, co-workers, friends, members of our church body, people that may be very different from us that we encounter in our work or community responsibilities. We know it in our brain, but Proverbs draws this wonderful line of distinction between knowledge and wisdom again and again where it shows that knowledge is having the capacity to grasp a fact, but wisdom is the ability to choose how to apply that in a way that works. Knowledge itself can just be like a like a sledgehammer, wisdom becomes like a warm friend that comes alongside to walk with you. Wisdom will enter your heart. General uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, the uh, commander of the Desert Storm operation under, under um, President George H.W. Bush, said the truth of the matter is that you always know the right thing to do. The hard part is doing it. And wisdom is God's grace. What he's talking about in verse 6 and 7 is that you and I, in order to really respond wisely to the people close to us, which enables us to learn how to respond to people that we want to reach in the world, this brings us to a capacity that is, is described by the Apostle Paul. Why he had that great proactive urgency was that he saw... The Gentile world, these non-Jewish world receiving the gospel, he saw the ministry of bringing good news like a priestly service. It's really an amazing thing that Paul talks about, about the priestly service of the good news of God. Now, pause and think about that very thing. We know that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, right? We're a royal priesthood. Shout out royal priesthood. And a priest, the, the new priesthood is every born-again, blood-washed, Christ-called follower of Jesus is a priest of the Lord. Amen? God has made you a kingdom of priests. Now, Paul says in Romans 15 and that this calling to bring good news to people is like part of that priestly service. So that in the old days, bringing a priest work to the temple was bringing an animal sacrifice. But now Christ has fulfilled all the sacrificial needs. Amen? His blood alone can save us. We sang it this morning. His blood alone can save us. The blood of the Lamb has triumphed. And now what is our priestly offering? Paul creates this wonderful picture that when you bring the good news of Jesus to others, it's like you are giving a priestly service to God. The 500 people that came across the, the booth in Shippensburg this week and heard the gospel with the beads, every single one of those encounters, even the ones that didn't respond on the spot, is a part of a priestly offering. Those that were ministering the gospel at, at that booth were giving a priestly offering to God. And, and so we're part of it. And so he brings this back then in this last aspect of Colossians 4.6 is that Paul compares this conversational grace, this, this urgent proactively 
bringing the good news to others, he compares it to sprinkling salt. And he says that if you want to be a communicator of the good news of the gospel, beginning in your own home and the people closest to you, and then fanning out like concentric circles to all the people you meet, you truly, shy or extrovert, doesn't matter, you can learn to be someone who responds with grace just as if your very words are sprinkling salt on a delicious meal. The way you present it. And if I picked a name out of the audience today and I could say, the way this person presents Jesus is going to be unique to the way this other person presents Jesus. And that's part of God's whole plan. In Colossians 4, 6 then, the salt signals a spiritual vitality that Jesus gives all of us to clearly express to others what only he can do. The salt has a wonderful kind of imagery in the Old Testament that that reminded them there were really four different ways that salt was used. One, obviously, an appetizer. In a day before they had refrigeration techniques, it was a preservative. It was also used in medical practices as an antiseptic. And in a real interesting application of the use of salt in, in, in ancient times, women would often uh, create a layer of salt under the pan that they were cooking on. And the use sounds very unappealing to us, but in, in a very remote and rustic culture, they often had to cook with dung. And there was an igniting, a flammable quality of, of, of creating a salt underlaying of a pan that ignited flames. It seems to me that in many ways, Paul is emphasizing the appetizing part of the salt and the preserving part, but it's also wonderful to realize that part of being a salty believer, bringing a dash of the salt of faith in Christ into every circumstance, is that God can use your salt to ignite a flame of faith in others. A a noted uh, Roman historian by the name of Plutarch commented on how they used the word salt uh, in, in, uh, in food in, in first century Rome. He said many, Plutarch said that many people call salt, and this is in the natural uh, world of preparing food, many people call salt the charitas or caritas or graces of food, because they're mingled into most things, making them agreeable and pleasant to taste. And of course, in the ancient world, uh, salt became such a valuable commodity because of its application to so many aspects of life, and yet, because there were certain places where salt had to be drawn, had to be found, and could be traded upon, across the world, in many parts of the world, so that uh, spices from Asia were even traded for salt in many, many stretches of the Fertile Crescent. And at one point, even in the 6th century, there was a place where salt was traded by the Moors merchants ounce for ounce for gold because it had become such a valuable commodity. Well, I, I believe that, in essence, what Paul was giving to the believers was this sense 
that salt is a reminder that Christ himself is present among us. The salt is a graciousness. It's a reminder to bring the presence of him who alone can bring us to the kingdom and that we all can bring an awareness of the needs of others into our conversations. As we close, I want to ask you to think about this in verse number six, and that is that he uses the word always. Now, I know that this feels like an overwhelming goal. Let your speech always be with grace. Let your speech always be with grace. How could, uh, how could we possibly do that? Well, there is a wonderful fact in the good news, and that is it is wrapped around the person of Jesus. And there are times in our lives where we feel like we run out of grace. We run out of patience. If you hear a sermon on forgiveness, for example, it's easy to say amen to the sermon. Really easy. Until you think of that one person that really did you wrong and has really wounded you and you wonder, can I really do that? And it's always there. It's always at that it's always at that cross point where we realize, I can't do this in myself, that we meet the salt of the covenant, the salt of the kingdom, Christ presence himself. So I want to invite you, pray, because that word always might feel daunting to many of us. Can I always speak with grace? Can I always overcome my irritation? Can I always get beyond my anger? Can I always avoid maybe using bad language or some other issue that, that crops up in my life? Oh, yes, you can. But remember, it's just like praying always, rejoicing evermore. It is an awareness that the good news that we're sharing today is wrapped around the person of Jesus. That the good news is wrapped around his risen glory. That it is Christ the King who invites us to learn of him. Could you stand together for a moment and let's just take a moment quietly before we sing to just maybe for a moment of stillness to say in our hearts to the Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for how you respond to me. Could you do that with me? And we'll just turn it into a simple prayer. We'll say, thank you, Lord, for how you respond to me. And then we'll add to that in a moment. Would you pray aloud with me together? Thank you, Lord, for how you respond to me. Thank you, Lord, for how you respond to me. And then let's add this prayer. Give me grace to respond. Respond with alertness to the living Savior. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, I love.